0: Hello and welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm Mark Cosquila, back again with my co-host Helena Beer to bring you another great episode. Happy Publication Week, Helena.
1: Why, thank you, Mark. Um, Yes, I'm very excited to be bringing our audience the 22nd edition of Gold Later This Week on the 23rd of June. Um, It's a shame we can't publish a day early so the numbers match, but hey, we've got some amazing features coming up in this issue, including two that will be mentioned shortly during our news roundup.
0: Yes, so do be sure to subscribe to gold at www.emg-gold.com so you don't miss out. For today though, we've got a great interview with Luca Desani, Vice President for Oncology Medical Affairs at Johnson & Johnson, who discusses all things medical affairs. But before that, let's kick off with things you might have missed. So what's been happening in the news this week, Helena.
1: Well, we reported back in April that the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NHS England and the UK's Department of Health and Social Care finalised an evaluation of two new subscription-style model antibiotics, one being Pfizer's Zafir and the other, Shinogi's Fetroja. The NHS has now announced it is set to roll out this new subscription model to help in the fight against antimicrobial resistance.
0: That's right. NHS chief executive Amanda Pritchard said that superbug busting drugs on the NHS will save lives and strike a blow in the global battle against antimicrobial resistance. Until now, innovation in antibiotics has been limited, but this pioneering NHS subscription scheme aims to turn the tide by working with pharmaceutical firms to make sure we have these superbug battling drugs ready and available to those patients who need them most.
1: The ABPI also released a statement in support of this scheme with Dr. Paul Catchpole, the Value and Access Policy Director at the ABPI, commenting that this announcement lays the groundwork for rapidly establishing a permanent, sustainable, UK-wide solution for evaluating and reimbursing new antibiotics, which recognises the full value these treatments bring to patients, the NHS and society. He also concluded that this will allow the UK to play a full part of alongside the most developed economies to incentivize further global innovation. As we mentioned, the next issue of Gold is out this week and our cover feature is actually on AMR, so nice and timely. Do look out for it this Thursday and make sure you're subscribed to Gold so you're among the first to see it when it hits inboxes. We'll pop a subscribe link in the show notes so you can get to it easily.
0: Also in the news this week, CSL Bering has recently teamed up with portrait photographer Rankin to launch his campaign Portraits of Progress. The project showcases the stories and lived experiences of those living with haemophilia from the 20th century to modern times, with visitors to the exhibition in New York being taken on a tour of the progression of treatment for the disorder. This marks Rankin's first live exhibition in the US in three years, and it will tour the US and Europe later this year.
1: The exhibition features portraits of patients with haemophilia, caregivers and healthcare professionals shot by the famous photographer, accompanied by personal stories, historical images and a timeline of scientific discoveries in treating the disorder. Franken commented that as a photographer, I've gravitated towards campaigns which can make a difference. Haemophilia is something I thought I understood, but I realised there was so much to learn. Listening to these exceptional stories and learning about the extraordinary journey of this community was a true education and privilege, so a really lovely quote from him there.
0: We've interviewed haemophilia patient advocate Lawrence Willard for the podcast recently, and he also features in the upcoming issue of Gold in our roundtable, which is on the patient perspective of farmers' patient centricity, so do keep an eye out for that. Now, Moving on to our interview this week, Assistant Editor Isabel O'Brien caught up with Luca Desani, Vice President for Oncology Medical Affairs at Johnson & Johnson, and Friend of Gold as one of our previous contributors to discuss his passion for medical affairs, particularly driving the function into the future.
1: Indeed. They talk about how the function has evolved over the last 10 years, the potential the metaverse holds for the industry, and the increasing power and prevalence of cross-industry partnership. So let's take a listen.
2: So Luca, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you doing?
3: Very good. Thank you for having me.
2: No, it's great to have you. So we met virtually, oh, I guess about a year ago now when I was writing a feature about the leap from medicine to medical affairs. And we got put in contact because you actually spent 15 years of your life before you joined the industry as a physician. So I'd really like to start the interview here. Could you maybe first of all just tell our listeners why you decided to leave the profession and join Medical Affairs and also what kind of insights did that give you in your career in Medical Affairs?
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I I need to say there is a reason why I moved from clinical practice to the industry and then there is a separate reason uh, why I decided to stick around <laughs> and, um, and the, to answer probably the first part, um, the reason I decided to transition, it was very much driven by my passion for clinical research, even in, you know, back in the days when I was in, um, in clinical practice, I was spending quite a bit of time, uh, running studies and, um, and, um, you know, doing, doing research. My understanding obviously had a very limited understanding of what medical affairs was all about back in the days. Uh, But my understanding was, you know, that's an opportunity for me to do more of what I like um, doing research and, um, and working with investigators and all of that good stuff. Um, so that's the main driver. That was the main driver for me to explore uh, opportunities uh, in um, in the industry. Uh, however, uh, and that's probably the most interesting piece, uh, there is the reason why I decided to stay, right? Why I decided to continue in, uh, in medical affairs and in, in the industry in different roles. And that's mostly because of the, Uh, innovation. It's very much because of the opportunity we have in medical affairs to work with people with very different background, whether it's marketing individuals, health economics, engineers, uh, obviously now more and more people with um, technology and IT background. So I think when you put together all these different uh, perspectives uh, in trying to find new treatment options, new medicines for patients, that's really when magic happens. Um, so that's really what what's uh, interesting to me and, and the main reason why I decided to continue to be in the pharmaceutical industry. Because I, as I said, I do feel that all these different perspectives and all that diversity of background is um, very much the kind of unique uh, recipe for bringing real innovation to patients.
2: Hmm. So sort of that eclectic mix of people and creating really impactful change. But what about that point on insights, Lucas? So obviously, having a medical background and coming into medical affairs must have been quite useful to you?
3: That's right. I was um, on the customer side for many years and you do know what to expect. You do know what good looks like when it comes to partnering with pharmaceutical industries. You do know how to um, make the most out of that collaboration. So uh, it's very much about you know knowing what good looks like when it comes to that partnership, knowing what the expectations are from the other side, and, and try to make sure that we keep that in mind on a day-to-day basis when we, on the medical affairs side, we plan our strategies, we plan our activities, and we want to involve individuals who are uh, in uh, in clinical practising as, as, as physicians or investigators.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Now, you've obviously been in medical affairs for, correct me if I'm wrong, nearly 10 years now, mainly focused in the oncology space. And I want to ask you a little bit about how the landscape for medical affairs has changed over the past 10 years.
3: Yeah. So um, I think, you know, what we do in medical affairs is... Uh, probably consistent across all therapeutic areas. And uh, uh, when we think of the way medical affairs has transformed over the last 10 years, it's it's amazing. When I first started in, in medical affairs, um, the remit uh, was much more, I would say, narrow. And there was a, a much more specific set of, Uh, responsibilities and activities that medical affairs was in charge of, mostly around uh, data uh, sharing with top uh, opinion leaders, data dissemination, Um, but it was very much of an educational role that we were playing, as well as obviously more the internal role um, as subject matter experts to support other functions, whether it's commercial or market access. So that used to be the core of what we uh, did back in the days. Now, of course, I don't need to tell you, you know medical affairs is, is dramatically changed. We have things like uh, real-world evidence and data generation that became a huge part of what we do. We have the entire communication and omni-channel Engagement, and um, we have different areas that we cover when it comes to um, innovation in um, in in research as well as in uh, data dissemination. And um, so, bottom line, the uh, the responsibilities of a medical affairs organization of a modern medical affairs organization are now much much broader. But as I said, this is true probably across the board, but I think oncology when it comes to the unmet medical need is very unique. And so I think that's probably one of the drivers, right? When you speak with any medical affairs professionals in my organization, and I assume even beyond that, the first thing they will tell you is they want to er eradicate cancer, right? They want to end cancer for good and I think that's a big purpose to have uh, as a professional Uh, and I think that's probably one of the common themes when it comes to why I do what I do and why we do what we do in medical affairs.
2: Yeah that's really interesting what you say there particularly reflecting on how much the medical affairs function has evolved. I was recently at a conference the Next Pharma Summit and they were talking about how in the past MSLs would sometimes be sent out with a manuscript, whereas a sales rep would be sent out with lots of fancy technology and segmentation. And it's kind of thinking about medical affairs as a much broader function. They're not just there to communicate information to a healthcare professional, the, the scope's a lot wider. And that kind of leads me on to my next question, which is about. MSLs and sales teams. So I just want to get your perspective on this really as a medical affairs professional, what do you think to the statement of sales teams are going to shrink in the future and MSL teams are going to grow?
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously, there is a, um, as I said, the entire healthcare ecosystem and and landscape is changing. And, you know, with with pandemic, probably is been changing even faster than before with new needs and and the need for telemedicine and a a variety of other uh, new dynamics and and, uh, that were not really um, mainstream even just a couple of years ago. So definitely the healthcare ecosystem is evolving and therefore we as an organization, we have to evolve as well regardless if you are commercial or sales or medical and and science right so i think there is definitely a need to keep changing and keep evolving the way we do what we do Uh, what i'm I'm sure about is um, when it comes to medical affairs which is where i think i can speak in a more informed capacity um, I, i can certainly see medical affairs continuing to broaden uh, their responsibilities and um, again in particular when it comes to the digitization there are amazing uh, untapped opportunities i think we are still scratching the surface on things like social listening on things like the metaverse on things like web3 um, there are amazing opportunities and therefore uh, i can certainly see medical affairs a role continuing to change in the future, further expanding in terms of responsibilities, as well as um, also needing um, new skill set. Um, so it's not only about you know how many MSLS we have in the team, but you know do we have the right skill set, and are those MSLS. Uh, ready and, uh, and able to operate in this modern environment v- with virtual engagements, with uh, social listening, um, with you know, innovative ways of doing uh, uh, stakeholders mapping and tracking. Um, so I think, you know, to me, the biggest change I see, um, specifically in medical affairs, is more about capabilities, is more about skill set, And it's more about broader responsibilities than anything else. Um, So I I hope this this makes sense.
2: No, that does make sense. I suppose it's kind of a two-pronged mission. You've got to make sure that your MSL teams are digitally upskilled, but also that they are then capable of driving digital transformation beyond the organization and within healthcare professionals and that kind of thing. That's right. So you mentioned the metaverse there um, and this is a topic that I think can divide people in the industry there's definitely advocates and skeptics but I would love to know where you sit on that spectrum so what potential does virtual reality and the metaverse hold for medical affairs in your opinion
3: yeah so when it comes to new technologies um, and and you know I think you know uh, Innovation in general is really ingrained in our DNA at Jensen, and the idea of constantly exploring new technologies is paramount, right? So obviously some of those new technologies will become mainstream one one day, and and we will all embrace them uh, broadly. Some others maybe will not, and that's part of the game, right? So that's why we need to keep our... Eyes and ears wide open and and really constantly exploring new things. Uh, You know, we are now leveraging technologies that even just a couple of years ago were uh, very much pilot or or an exploratory stage, things like artificial intelligence, machine learning. Uh, So we used to explore. Those technologies as you know, brand new things. and Now, uh, as we speak, uh, artificial intelligence really became mainstream, and probably we wouldn't be able to do the data generation and insight generation we do um, now without uh, tapping into um, uh, those different those different technologies and, and partnering with you know the experts that. Uh, are really subject matter experts in, in those in those um, areas. I think the metaverse is probably still more of an exploratory um, or future, let's say, opportunity for us. Um, but if you think about it, uh, you know, even meeting on zoom was probably two three years ago not so common in medical affairs and actually most of the interactions were happening in um, in in person or maybe in a tele, on a teleconference uh, now zoom is mainstream and as I said it only took uh, probably a couple of years right uh, the metaverse is still in its infancy and um, however, the technology is improving in with leap and bounces. I, I remember the very first time I put a headset on was probably two and a half years ago. Um, and avatars and the entire user experience were still underwhelming. Um, today, if you um, had the chance to wear one of those uh, headsets, um, you definitely have a fairly decent um, experience. Is it where you would like it to be or I would like it to be? Probably not yet, uh, but I'm pretty confident that in two, three, four years from now, um, again, with the pace of the innovation and uh, and improvements we are seeing in the technology there, we are going to have very natural meetings in um in the metaverse. And I can tell you, we already have um, and I actually had a conversation the other day with someone who is an expert in the um, body language in in the metaverse. And um, and there are already ways you can um, understand uh, some of the uh, body language uh, that is very different from what you see and when you are having an in-person meeting, you, there is a, an entire again skill set, a different skill set um, on reading the body language when it comes to uh, being in, in the metaverse. So, uh, bottom line, I'm I'm very positive that um, the metaverse will become one of the channels uh, we are going to be using in the future. Um, it's more a matter of when rather than if.
2: And also, a case just having to sort of spoken to other people in the industry about it, having a goal in mind that you want to achieve in the metaverse rather than just being like, okay, this exists, let's go there without any sort of concrete plan in mind. Is that something you would agree with?
3: Yeah, no, 100%. And, and as with everything else, you really need to start small. And um, you may want to start with running an advisory board, like a small group of people in virtual reality. That's a very nice way to start to familiarize yourself with the technology to um, start to appreciate how, you know, the pros and cons, right? What's really going and working very well and what's not working very well. And then obviously you can expand on other more complex um, uh, Activities like education, or data dissemination, or having entire uh, large conferences in in the metaverse, right? So, um, but again, from a from a medical affairs standpoint, um, I think my recommendation to anyone who is interested in exploring uh, the technology, you know, just start small—an internal meeting, an advisory board, something that you feel comfortable, you can control. Um, but just just, just uh, make sure you start to familiarize with the technology, because it's something that, as I said, sooner or later is, is probably going to happen.
2: Yeah, it is a case only time will tell, but I think you're completely right. Experimentation is key, not <laughs> rushing into it. Um, yeah, right. I completely agree. So when we talk about the metaverse, we're obviously talking about innovation and Unfortunately, pharma is an industry that is known for innovation in many respects, but digital innovation, not so much. What do you think is an industry, or what what would be the number one industry that you think pharma could learn from when it comes to innovation, perhaps the the digital kind in particular?
3: Yeah, well, obviously, obviously if you um, uh, restrict the field to uh, digital, definitely, you know, the technology industry Mm -hmm. is... um, industry that we are actually already partnering with quite actively right We do recognize that we are not the subject matter expert when it comes to um, uh, technology and, and digital innovation but we have been partnering for uh, many years now with you know, the large organizations that are. Subject matter expert, they have the subject matter expertise in in technology. So, um, and and really bringing together the best of both worlds, right? Because the reality is, these other companies and and um, and industry do not necessarily understand and do not, they are not subject matter expert in the healthcare space. So you really combine the two uh, expertise to build something that is. Uh, synergistic and uh, and probably the two in isolation would have not been able to to um, uh, pull out of the ground. So um, the idea is um, we definitely look to the um, large technology organizations as partners. We have been doing that for quite some time. I think I mentioned earlier what we have been doing in the space of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Of course, when we started the journey, we were no experts, right? But again, we went out and we tried to find that expertise um, so that now we are somehow experts in uh, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning in the healthcare space. So. I think that's a little bit the key to anything innovation. Just be open-minded, go out and find the right partner for the project you are envisioning and really co-create. Like Make it, make it your goal to build something um, in conjunction with someone who can bring a different skill set, a different expertise, a different know-how from the one that you can bring.
2: And do you think that's the future, more partnership, or do you think more people with this technological expertise are going to be brought into pharma to work more internally on projects like this?
3: Probably it's a little bit of both, right? Because even to go out and partner with companies, you need to know who, you know, first of all, you need to know what you are talking about. You need to know what you are trying to accomplish. You need to understand whether it's uh, realistic or not. And then um, you can go out and and seek for partnerships. So the more we are advancing the technology, the more we do need uh, deep expertise internally. Uh, But again, for that disruptive innovation, for that um, extra know-how, that's really where you need to partner with other companies, other industries.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Sort of a combination of the two of having people within the organization that understand what to look for, but still obviously going out to those specialists to get the job done. So Luca, we like to end every interview with a bit more of a personal reflection. Um, So I'd like to ask you a little bit about yourself as a leader. Um, So obviously you've been in the industry for over 10 years now. How do you view yourself as a leader and who has influenced you to become the leader you are today?
3: Yeah, so when I think of leadership, and this is actually a, um, uh, probably I can address both parts of your um, question with this uh, story. I think many years ago, um, I, I, I had a mentor um, who uh, taught me this lesson about leadership. Um, and uh, because you know, the idea is leadership is many different things. And uh, whenever you uh, think of leadership, you can, you know, go in b- very many different directions, and there are so many different elements um, that uh, make a great leader. Um, however, you know, I, I've been relentlessly asking great leaders or people I look up to, you know, what's your what's your secret sauce? What what's what's your, you know, if you had to mention one thing, right. That has been great in your, in your career, in your journey, you know, what's, what's that one thing that really made, made the difference. And I remember um, uh, a mentor of mine years ago uh, told me, uh, you know, if I really have to think, I think I I still remember that, you know, that moment, right. Uh, He posed and he, you know, I could really see him really thinking deeply uh, and, and try to come up with you know, that one thing that was the real differentiator. And, and, and that's when uh, he told me, um, well, you know, to me, leadership um, is about making good decisions. Um, and um, and um, the more good decisions you make, uh, the more um, probably you're going to be recognized as a as a great leader. And decisions is multiple things. It can be business decisions. It can be decisions around your team members. It can be decisions about work life balance. And and you know decisions are you know it's it's very broad. Um, but uh, still you know when uh, he told me that I, I I immediately thought I was on to something, right? I I thought probably it's true, right? So being able to make informed decisions, being able to uh, connect with your team members to get all the elements you need to make the best possible decision or the very well-informed decisions, uh, but at the same time also being able to deal with uncertainty and and still being able to make a decision even if you don't have all the elements, or even if you are still missing some pieces of information, and uh, and still being able to pull the trigger on your project or or your um, on your your decision. So um, again, I. I, I I wish I had a um, kind of magic answer to your question, and I'm afraid I don't. Uh, but I, I can certainly encourage everyone who is on a leadership journey to really think about, you know, the way they make decisions, the way they um, um, really take all the different um, inputs, and and uh, and they re elaborate. And those different pieces of information they have to make the best possible decision with the information they know. Um, I think that's a very important component of being a great leader. There are many other things, of course, but I, I very much like this idea of being a great decision maker if you want to be a great leader.
2: The power of a good decision. Luca, thank you so much. That was really insightful. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Really interesting conversation there, particularly to hear Luca's perspective on leadership. When you think about it, he's right. Often it does boil down to the ability to make strong and effective decisions.
1: Yes. And I also enjoyed the discussion around the metaverse. He was right to raise that while the technology is largely unknown at the moment, starting small and experimenting is no bad thing. And as he said, it would be wrong to ignore it completely.
0: If you haven't done so yet, do check out the cover article from the last issue of Gold that explores the potential of the metaverse for the industry.
1: That's all we have time for this week. But talking of gold, look out because a brand new issue is landing this Thursday, as I think we might have mentioned. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe for free to receive the new issue directly into your inbox on the day.
0: Yes, as we mentioned in this interview, we're exploring the growing threat of AMR plus the rising importance of pharmacovigilance and the role of unconscious bias in non-adherence among many other interesting topics and challenges facing the industry today.
1: Regardless of your place in the pharmaceutical industry, we hope there'll be something in there for everyone.
0: So do look out for that and we'll see you next week for another episode of the podcast.
1: See you then.